Hello and welcome back to the European Lens with me, Frances Fitzgerald. I'm delighted to be joined for this special episode by Catherine Day. Catherine is a former Secretary General of the European Commission, a hugely significant post which she held for 10 years. Prior to that, she was Director General for Environment, as well as other distinguished positions within the Commission, including a member of the late Peter Sutherland's Cabinet. Catherine is now Chairperson of the Citizens' Assembly on Gender Equality. Catherine, there's so much I want to talk to you about, including the EU, its future and your current role. But to start, I'd love to know how you became the first female Secretary General of the European Commission. What is that path like? Um, Well, Frances, I suppose um, I had been a long time in the Commission And I think one of the things that the new president, Barroso, was looking for was a senior official who knew a number of different policies. I think a lot of directors general have tended to specialise in one area. And I had been on competition policy with Peter Sutherland. I had done external relations, including enlargement of the EU. I had been in environment. So I had kind of gone around the different Uh, policy areas, the different competences of the EU. In competition policy, the Commission is very powerful and only subject to the Court of Justice. In external relations, it has almost no power at all. And in environment, at the time I was there, we were trying to move away from a lot of legislation to working more on policy implementation. So I think that was one of the main um, reasons why President Broso asked me to be Secretary General. I I think he also liked the idea of being the first president to appoint a woman secretary general. Fantastic achievement. What did you do when you first went to Brussels? Um, I started working in what was then called um, the Internal Market and Industrial Affairs. And this was before 1992, before the single market really got going. But it was a good introduction to the sort of technocratic economic work of the commission. Uh, But after three years, I moved to the cabinet of Dick Burke and then to Peter Sutherland. And I think that was a really significant um, career development for me, because working directly for a commissioner, you see where the technical side of the commission and the political side come together. And you also learn a lot about communication, about um, how the public reacts to policies. So it's a semi-political, semi-civil service job, if you like. And I think that really gave me an appetite for seeing the bigger picture and started developing my career to where it went to. And did you ever think when you were in school or university in Ireland that you'd end up working in the commission? When I was in university studying economics in UCD, I was very keen on becoming a third secretary in foreign affairs because I was anxious to see the bigger world. But I was very fortunate to have Gard Fitzgerald as one of my tutors while I was in UCD. This was at the time when Ireland joined the EEC, as it was then. And I think Gareth really enthused me for Europe and was encouraging us all to get involved. So in a way, my two interests came together then. Another Gareth Fitzgerald legacy, uh, uh, encouraging you along the way and you ending up being the first female Secretary General of the European Commission. What was the job like, Catherine? Day to day, it's such a big bureaucracy. I find in the European Parliament even that, you know, the amount of material that comes uh, to our desks, the number of meetings every day, the range of topics. And yet there were you really responsible for so much of it and dealing with such a wide range of topics. 
what was it like day to day? Did you have a lot of support staff? Uh, yes, of course I did. Um, I think it's very important at that level that you concentrate on what only you can do. So as Secretary General, you have a certain number of functions. For example, in the European Council, I was the only commission official to accompany the president. So nobody else could do that. If I was sick or something, nobody else could be there. Um, and then there are lots of meetings which might be interesting to go to, but where you can delegate to somebody else. So I think time management um, and constantly trying to make sure that I was working on the real priorities. Those were the big things. But you need, and I think maybe women are good at this, you need good collaborative skills because you need to work with your colleagues. And um, as you know, Francis, the Commission is both one organization, but it's composed of 27 political uh, people and they all have their own agenda. So trying to marry the two and get a single commission view on everything that was happening in the world or even on the timing of proposals. You know, what was the right time and the wrong time to come forward with something? So I spent a lot of my time trying to stick to the priorities of the president and the college and then persuade cajole and sometimes bully my colleagues into working with those priorities but i i really had fantastic people on my team um great support from them and i think having been already so many years in the commission i knew everybody they knew me uh, we had sort of grown up together in the system so we couldn't really pretend with each other or fool each other and I think all of those long established relations really stood me in good stead then when when I became secretary general. What a very exciting job, Catherine. I mean, you were you went to all of these council uh, meetings, which means effectively you were seeing the prime ministers over a period of time from all of the member states coming together and having those discussions about priorities, trying to get agreement on everything from agriculture to the environment. What stands out for you that you can talk about about those meetings? Well, first of all, it was uh, absolutely fascinating and a privilege to be the fly on the wall. Um, I think what struck me most was um, that it is a club. And I was very interested to see each newly appointed prime minister come in. And some were very suspicious, especially if they hadn't come from a mainstream background. Some were very suspicious about uh, were they going to be ganged up on or was this a club where only the big countries held sway? And what I was fascinated to see was over two or three meetings, how they watched and tuned in and got it and then became equally relevant members of the club. So I think that was very interesting. The other thing was how much pressure they were under to take decisions, often when they knew they would be difficult to explain at home. But the bottom line for all of them, in my view, was that with the exception of the UK, um, they all understood that the, the future well-being of their country depended on being in the EU and making it work. And it was watching them come out of their national context and begin to get their heads around what does it mean to be working as one of a group of European leaders. And you could see that some got on easily with others, some did not. But everybody, you know, got their say, everybody was listened to. Um, but then sometimes where people were put under pressure, you know, when it was necessary to find um, an agreement on an outcome. But I think all being um, elected politicians, they also had great sympathy for each other and they would, you know, keep the discussion going, try to find compromises to make it possible or easier 
for Prime Minister X, Y or Z to go home and say, well, I fought the good fight. We didn't get everything we wanted, but this is still a good outcome. And our, my colleagues were helpful to us, you know, and there can be times when that's very important because it is a club, a family where they do want um, each other to succeed. You know, everyone succeeds when everyone succeeds. And Catherine, was it mostly men were at those meetings? Uh, yes, overwhelmingly so. I mean, on the walls of the council building, there are a few rare photographs of when there would be more than two or three women prime ministers. For all of my time there, Angela Merkel was, um, I would say, the strongest and um, the best prepared and the hardest working member of the European Council. And there are various, as I say, photographs around which show her sometimes with one or two other women. I think in the 10 years I was there, the most they got up to was four. So it was a very male world. Um, it helps being Chancellor of Germany if you're one of the minority women, you know. <laughs> yes, I, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, it's it, there aren't that many more women there now, no. as far as I'm aware. Uh, it's still probably two or three and never certainly a critical mass, which is fascinating because women just don't get to prime ministerial level, generally speaking, in our world just yet. Certainly not a critical mass. So the occasional woman here and there, as you say, I was struck by you commenting about the UK, Catherine. Was there difficulties with the EU evident over the decades? Uh, yes, I have to say so. It manifested itself in, first of all, um, a reluctance to do anything in the social policy area, for example. That was considered more or less anathema to the UK. Also, internationally, the natural instincts of the UK were to work with international bodies, so with NATO, with the United States, not to think first of the EU. And then there was always, well, always, I mean, in the 10 years I was observing it up close, um, there was always the tendency to, to have to come out a winner. There was not the spirit of compromise that I've described in the others. I think that's because the British political system is so adversarial. And it's also because their system is winner takes all. So it's first past the post and then you don't have to care about the people who didn't vote for you. Um, whereas most other European governments are coalition governments and their daily bread and butter is finding compromise. And I think that does make, you know, nobody can get their own way all the time or even most of the time in the European Union. Even Germany has to compromise. Even France has to compromise. They have to find allies. And the UK just didn't, didn't, didn't ever really seem to get that and be fully part of that world. And then as, as time went on, and um, particularly as the Tory party became more and more radical, I, I vividly recall the night when um, about two o'clock in the morning the, in the European Council, they were discussing the fiscal compact. And David Cameron said, I'm sorry, you know, I can't do this. I'd never get it through at home. And um, President Sarkozy just said, well, David, I'm sorry, we have to go ahead. You're welcome to come with us, but we're going ahead without you. And I remember feeling, oh, my God, this could be the beginning of a rift opening up between the UK and the rest of Europe. And then you kind of think it's all papered over and it's OK. It was just a bad moment. But it actually was the beginning of the end, I think, um, because we had come to a point where after huge efforts to accommodate the UK. And I mean, everybody went the extra 10 miles to accommodate the UK for several years. But they finally came to the understanding that maybe they couldn't um, they couldn't find a way to satisfy them and, and that the, the bigger duty of Europe was to itself and to all the other countries. So it was a very sad time, I have to say. But it, it 
looking back, a lot of the signs were there and perhaps it was inevitable. That's a, a really fascinating insight into the UK approach to the EU and the reasons that you've outlined. And of course, it, it, it led to Brexit. Do you think some of it was empire? Was it British empire sort of history or or not? I think it was a tangled web, really. It seemed to me that the UK hadn't really adjusted not to being the power it had been, whereas for different reasons, France and Germany had. They recognised that while they're big countries in Europe, they're small on the world scene and they can only uh, be influencers if they work together. I think the UK still felt it could go it alone and wanted to go it alone, for example, in foreign policy, always making its own statements, etc., not wanting to be part of the bloc. I, I, it's very difficult to generalise, but I do think there were some in the Tory party who, who did kind of feel, well, we won the war and all these countries lost, so we have some kind of superiority. And they have actually airbrushed out the American role in winning the war, I think. Um, so, uh, But I think it's too easy to say that. I think also they had spent... 40 years of, you know, negative feed to the media and negative feedback to their population. And, uh, you know, it's not surprising then that people don't believe you when you suddenly turn around and say, oh, but actually the EU is fine and we must stay in it. If you spend 40 years, you know, decrying it and, and ridiculing it. And I think Boris Johnson, when he was a journalist in Brussels, he specialised in ridicule, you know, with the bent bananas and the straight cucumbers and all the rest of it. And I think that is the most corrosive thing you can do to the EU is to make a mockery of it. And you know as well as I do, Francis, it's complicated. It takes time, uh, but it does take decisions. It does progress and it has done enormously positive things for its population. And, and I believe we'll do it in the future. So to, to reduce it all to some laughing stock, I think does it a great disservice. And I think that's that was all part of the mix uh, as to why the, the Brexit vote went the way it did. I totally agree with you about that. Um, looking to the future, Catherine, without the UK, what do you think um, the EU will be like? You know, is it, is it, will it recover from that? Uh, will it be as powerful? Is it a big loss? Well, um, I think the EU will recover. I think it is a big loss. Um, I think the UK brought an enormous amount of expertise and I think it will take quite a bit of time for the rest of the EU to make up for that. And I think for Ireland in particular, because we were very used to having had a similar system, we were very used to sort of riding on the UK uh, expertise. First of all, I think the departure, if I have to look for an upside, um, I think it will mean um, less holding back in important policy areas where the public expects the European Union to act. And by that, I'm really thinking of the social area. I think we saw in the euro crisis and the aftermath um, quite an imbalance between the economic power of the EU on the one hand, but the inability to do very much to help the ordinary lives of people. And I don't say it was only because of the UK, but the UK certainly never, uh, also not being in the euro, was never going to um, welcome or help the EU develop a good social policy. So I think that is one area where I think um, uh, the EU will move forward now. And I think also having not having somebody at the table anymore who is always looking for problems, I think that will make it um, more cohesive. 
Uh, that's not to say that there are not a million problems every day in the EU because we're so opinionated as citizens, because we have the luxury of being able to express ourselves, but also we all have our own traditions and backgrounds. And so it's a constant battle to bring people together. But I really feel that everybody else, even if even the more difficult member states, they all know that they want the EU to succeed and that they want to be in it. And I think that changes the mood and the atmosphere. But we will miss the UK. Um, the other thing I think that they brought uh, very much was a kind of insistence on what goes under the heading of better regulation. Um, and I think the way the EU makes policies was transformed um, in recent years, largely under British pressure, to get rid of red tape, to simplify, to update. And while I sometimes felt they took that a bit far, I think the way the Commission makes proposals and the Council and Parliament agree them has been transformed for the better. And I think the quality of the legislative process is infinitely better than it was. And I would be worried a little bit that there will be a slackening off of, of the interest in that. Final worry I would have is um, the UK kept the EU open. I mean, it has always had an international outlook. It's a world trader. And I would be a little bit afraid of there's always a protectionist side to a lot of the continental countries. And I think for the smaller open countries like Ireland, like the Netherlands, like the Scandinavians, that, that is something we have to be very vigilant about and to keep the EU open to the outside world. Would you be concerned, Catherine, with what we're seeing in Hungary and Poland at the moment and that kind of shift away from what we call European values? Would you be concerned that that might be a danger sign that other countries either might be forced to leave or will leave themselves because it's so uncomfortable for them if they are going to move into that area where they don't have the respect for the rule of law, or, you know, fundamental rights? Well, I am very worried and um, I worked on enlargement with Poland and Hungary at a time of great hope and feeling that the wrongs of history were being righted. So I'm very disappointed to see what's happened now, but I don't I'm not giving up on them. I think they will work their way through this period. I think the young people in both countries want what young people right across Europe want. And I don't believe they want the kind of regime change that's happening at the moment. So I think, you know, they will, I'm convinced they will work their way out of this. Um, but I do think it's very important to have the common sense of shared values. Now, what I see at the moment is I don't see any sign of Hungary or Poland being interested in leaving the EU. Uh, they know how much um, of their well-being and the decency and quality of life is down to their membership of the EU. And as you know, there's no mechanism for forcing out countries. Um, uh, so we will have to continue to struggle to find a way. And I think, I mean, the EU does try to work through persuasion. It does try to work through compromise. I, I think it's very important that the other member states stay firm and uh, keep looking for ways to make the countries understand that you can't, like, like they said to the UK, you can't have the benefits, you must take uh, let's say the the work side that goes with being in the EU, but I don't see anybody else wanting to leave. I think the British media want that, and they will continue to stir the pot because they would like to have company to vindicate their decision. But I think all the others have their eyes wide open as to where their real interests lie. I, I note in the last number of council meetings that they haven't been able to use the phrase gender equality because four or five member states think it's an excuse for LGBTQI rights or for something else. And they won't sign the Istanbul uh, Convention either because uh, they say the same thing. Um, 
How do you think we're going to be able to handle that issue in the future? Uh, well, I think, first of all, all the other member states have to stand firm to their values of real equality. Um, and I think also, um, you know, we, we we now have put into the financial part of the life of the union um, a connection with, with the uh, issue of values. And probably in the end of the day, um, if, if explaining bringing people with you doesn't work, um, there may have to be some kind of financial uh, interventions or, or deductions, um, because I think the general population won't stand for uh, members who uh, only want to dip into the bank account, but never want to give um, or to uphold the values. Um, but I think it will be a long road. And, um, you know, I think if you look at the recent history of Ireland, um, we have come a long road, too, in terms of coming to terms with uh, gender equality and gender identity. And it's fairly recent. So I think um, I would be hoping that Poland and Hungary would also make that same journey and come to the understanding that you don't lose anything by allowing people to be who they are. You don't have to box them into a narrow trench and say, this is who you are and there you shall stay. That's the part of European history we want to escape from. And as you say, Catherine, we've relatively recent history ourselves in relation to those issues. I often think that when I'm in the midst of debates in the parliament and we're criticising Poland and Hungary, it's relatively recently that we've uh, actually been as inclusive as thankfully we we are now. Catherine, just a question uh, before I go on to the Irish attitude to the EU. Just a personal question. Um, you were the first woman to become Secretary General of the European Commission. Were there any particular difficulties, do you think, because you were female in that position or were you so expert in so many areas that actually and so experienced in the commission uh, that you were able to, able to overcome them? I think probably I had more problems as a younger official than by the time I became secretary general because then I had already been director general for three years um, and as I say I, I knew the place inside out and most people knew me as well because even though Europe is a big place, um, the circles that deal with EU policies, people tend to do it early in their career, maybe come back mid-career and then end up as ambassadors or even commissioners. Or, for example, after enlargement, I knew several of the East European commissioners personally because they had been the people who had negotiated accession. So it, it ends up being a small enough um, circle. But I would say earlier on, it, it, it you know, I think most women would identify with the fact that you have to fight to make your voice heard. You have to work harder, be better prepared to make your impact. Um, but having said that, I was very lucky with the bosses that I had. And I always say that they had more confidence in me than I had in myself. But they encouraged me to be brave and to try things. And they backed me up and I learned a huge amount from them. Catherine, let's look at the relationship between Ireland and the EU. What do you think is the most common misunderstanding about the EU? I wonder sometimes if we get confused about this issue of competence. Would you just in a, a very simple way, perhaps, talk to me about that? So um, it's I think that uh, not only Irish people, everybody finds it difficult when something happens. And if there's no commission competence, like in health, for example, with the COVID crisis, the commission had no powers, no expertise that it could easily take down off the shelf and say, here's how we're going to do it. Um, but that's an example of where 
um, suddenly Europeans can recognize this is something we can't solve on our own. This is something where we should work together. Um, so let's agree that we will work together and the Commission will help us to do that. Um, and I think you asked me what's the common, most common misperception. I think it is that in a way we, we tend to see Brussels as issuing diktats. Oh, those people in Brussels, they decide. And they don't realize that it's our ministers, our MEPs, um, our civil servants working through the decisions who, who, who contribute to um, making the final decisions. There's this feeling that there's a big monster over there that doesn't understand or love us and they make decisions. And it's not like that at all, as, as you know and as you see. But, but it is complicated to explain to people. I, I don't think much many people understand how the Irish government works either. So I suppose it's not too surprising. And uh, let's just stick with that health example. I mean, many people have been critical about how the Commission has dealt with the health issues recently, vaccinations, contracts, all of that. Now, if it's outside its competence, but there's an agreement to do it, does that sort of mean that the EU can always move into areas if there's agreement to work on it, despite the treaties. That's a little hard for people to understand, because I agree with you. We need to be working together on many issues across Europe to solve many environmental problems, health issues, uh, communication, connectivity, false information. Like how, uh, what about those boundaries, Catherine? How are they decided on a practical day-to-day -day basis? Well, um, you often hear people talking about creeping competence, you know, as though the Commission is um, in the long grass trying to sneak up on the member states and take away their powers. And I think the, the Commission is genuinely there to help. It sounds a little bit idealistic, I suppose, but its, it's rationale, its reason for existing is to help the, the, the citizens of the EU to live better lives. And in a case like this on health, um, I think where, where every country saw that it made sense to work together, the Commission can step in, but it doesn't, it doesn't then gain a competence that it keeps. So, for example, when this pandemic is over, if the member states don't want the Commission to be involved in the healthcare sector, the Commission will have to retreat back to the very limited powers that it has. Essentially, it has powers to look after cross-border healthcare. And so, for example, sometimes you hear about people needing cataract surgery, taking the bus from Cork up to the north of Ireland to get the cataracts removed. That's paid for uh, by the EU cross-border health. But that's a very, very small part of the healthcare that we all need on a regular basis. So you can have exceptional circumstances where member states and the parliament agree that we, we should do this together. But after the exceptional circumstances go away, Either then you need, uh, you need a legally binding decision that this is a new competence of the EU or um, everything has to shrink back to where it was before. And this is why we, we um, change the treaty from time to time, because, uh, for example, when we decided to have a common currency, they, we needed a whole new set of rules. And that, would have, that did um, confer new powers to organizations like the European Central Bank. So that could not be done on a gentleman's agreement basis. It had to be done in primary law, which is the treaty. Do you think we should move towards having health as a European competence? And how would that happen, Catherine? Uh, I think it would have to happen through treaty change. And tell me about treaty change. When do we last have treaty change? And would people support 
taking on? Would the EU want to do it generally? Would the Commission want to take on health as a competence? Seems to me there's an inevitability about that, given the the, the cross-border nature of the health issues. There is going to be a conference on the future of Europe. And um, I am not a fan of too frequent treaty change. Uh, It's a bit like I don't think you should change your constitution too often. It should be a kind of enduring set of principles. It's not there to deal with yesterday's problem or tomorrow's problem. It should be above that. Um, And I I do have a concern that um, in the EU, when we can't find political consensus on change, on, on what to do together, we resort to the process of treaty change to try to get it. Um, and I think that's the wrong way around. I think you need to have a discussion with people about do we want the EU involved in health or not? Um, and if the answer is yes, um, then you could say, oh, but we can't do that unless we change the, change the treaty. Let's change the treaty. Um, but not to start with treaty change, because I think there is nothing that turns the public off more than somebody coming along with a big volume of law, which is not written in an accessible style. It's not even written in the way that we in Ireland with the common law system that we write our laws is written in a continental style. So even if you have the odd brave citizen who says, I must find out about this, I'll read the Treaty of Lisbon. I think their eyes probably glaze over after the first 10 pages. So <laughs> I'm in favor of the treaty is the instrument that agree, that allows us to do certain things together as the EU and anything that's not in the treaty, your own member state does. And you get a lot of member states putting pressure on the commission and you see it in the parliament. A lot of people saying, oh, but this is an important issue and Europe should be active and Europe should legislate. Um, The commission and the parliament have to explain, no, we don't have the powers to do that. And if you want that changed, you have to get your government and all the others to, to look at treaty change. And I think there is a fear of takeover Um, maybe it's more acute at government level, but there is a fear of everything's going to be decided by Europe and Europe doesn't have the capacity for that. So I think we have to have um, uh, adult discussions about what is it that Europe does best and should do and what is it that it shouldn't do. And because all our member states are different, we have different national practices and traditions, I think there's a lot of stuff that, that should only be done in the national context. But there are increasing problems like climate change, like energy, like the pandemic at the moment. Um, But also how does how is Europe, how does Europe organize itself to influence the international system? These are things that we should agree to work on together. And that's why I think it needs good preparation and debate long before you ask people in this country to have a referendum about changing the treaty again. Catherine, the, we have the Commission, we have the Council and we have the Parliament. And there's a sort of a dance between the three, obviously. How would you describe the sort of power differentials between the, the three? I mean, are the Council clearly more powerful? Do they take any notice of the Parliament? Uh, the Commission come out with brilliant documentation, I have to say, and huge expertise. What? How would you describe that engagement now between the three? Um, well, first, I would say it's work. I think it's working much better now than it has done. That's because the council and the parliament are co-equal legislators. Um, for a long time, the commission um, regarded the council as the power centre. 
Um, but um, with the various changes in the different treaties, uh, I would say the Parliament has become the more important interlocutor for the Commission. It has the power to dismiss the Commission. Um, it has the power in deciding whether a president of uh, each incoming president of the Commission gets uh, to head up the Commission, and it holds hearings on the selection of each member of the Commission. And the Commission and the Parliament have developed not a perfect way, but a good way of having a joint work plan for the lifetime, which normally matches the term of the Commission and the term of the Parliament. The other thing I would say is that um, both, I mean, the Commission obviously has a Europe-wide perspective, so it doesn't take any national position. It, it needs to know the national positions. It needs to understand differences between countries, but its job is to find something that everybody can sign up to. And the Parliament has that trans-European view as well, whereas the Council, they are there representing their member state. Now, I'm not saying that they don't take the views of others into account, but that's not their first reflex. Their first reflex is, my country won't support this. My country wants this. Uh, I don't care what your country wants. It's my country that matters. And so uh, that's where the dance comes in uh, between the three uh, main actors. Um, the Commission only has the power to propose, which you would say, well, what's that worth? But because of its history, and I thank you for saying what you said about its expertise, which I think is true, but because of its expertise, when the Commission puts a proposal on the table, it has already tried to think through the impact in the different countries, tried to come out with compromises, which maybe not, which almost never are the last word, but which already show a reflected um, proposal. And so that's why the Commission's proposals have real power, also because the Commission consults uh, a lot in advance. So it brings in interest groups, it tries to understand their points of view, it tries to work with them. And so even before it makes a proposal, it's building a coalition. I think it's uh, I think it's extremely effective, I have to say, the Commission, from my experience. And I agree with you across the European Parliament now, you are really seeing um, its influence and indeed its power working with the Commission. And then, of course, the Council have to take note of that, even though they, they bring their own perspective from each member state. Um, Catherine, looking back, you've seen a lot of change in the EU during your time there, and you've seen some very tough times uh, for the European Union. Would you say mistakes were made around the austerity plans, for example, as they're called? What what would you see as, you know, from your point of view, were, were there any mistakes made or uh, what's your sense of, of that period? Um, well, I would say, of course, mistakes were made because the people making the decisions were human um, and they were working under tremendous pressure. And I think, of course, with hindsight, things could have been done differently and probably better. But we didn't have the luxury of hindsight at the time. And I think it's very easy now to forget just what the pressure was. I mean, I described that moment when, you know, David Cameron said, I can't go with you. And everybody wondered, was this the beginning of the end? But I was I mean, I also sat through sometimes 24, 36 hours of um, the meeting of prime ministers when they knew they had to make a decision. The markets were going to open. The euro would crash if they didn't make the right decision. And the pressure there was tremendous. And um, what was another thing I found fascinating was uh, President Van Rompuy at the time, he more or less locked them in the room 
Some of them wanted to have their finance ministers with them. They were not allowed. They were on their own, only the prime minister. And even for some critical meetings, the phone signal was blocked so that they were there entirely on their own. They could not seek advice. The buck really stopped there. Um, and I think that, you know, of course, in those circumstances, uh, things were not perfect. Um, but, you know, the pressure was immense. And we're living in a different time now where with very low interest rates, member states are willing to spend their way out of the problem as much as possible. But we didn't have that luxury then. And the euro was much less established. I mean, it was still a very, you know, the British press used to call it a Mickey Mouse currency. So, you know, had the had the euro failed, had it imploded, I think that would really have been an existential moment for the European Union. So even if things could have been done better, I think what was of lasting importance was that the euro did survive, that the European did emerge stronger from that crisis and will now continue to be um, a, a source of good. And it has learned from the past, but also we are living in circumstances that allow different solutions. When I say learned from the past, um, the recovery program is a very big package of spending. And that also breaks new ground because it has never before been agreed by member states or the parliament that the European Union can borrow using its own AAA rating. Uh, up to now, all of the funding has had to come from the member states. And of course, you know, there's always a reluctance to give more to your neighbour, even if you're in the European Union and you're bound together. Your own population gets critical. Um, I remember in the Greek crisis, the Prime Minister of Slovakia saying, but our pensioners get less than the Greek pensioners. Why are we bailing them out? You know, and that's a hard sell back home. I don't think the president would get, uh, I don't think he'd be allowed to do what he did that time, Catherine, if he was around now. I'm sure you agree with no, me. No, he wouldn't. He wouldn't. <laughs> that, was, that, was, uh, that was tough medicine, but it got the EU through a crisis. Finally, Catherine, and thank you for sharing all of your experience uh, with me today. You're currently chairing the Citizens' Assembly on gender equality here in Ireland. One question on that. What are you hoping to achieve from that, Catherine? Uh, have we still got a problem with gender equality in Ireland and across Europe? Well, I suppose I should say um, the Citizens' Assembly is not about my views. It's about the views of the 99 citizens. And they haven't voted yet, um, but I will give you my sense of, of where we are. First of all, I think um, there's a strong feeling that the advance of gender equality has stalled. And I would say the overwhelming majority of the citizens are not happy about that. They also, I think, have been quite surprised and many taken aback to see that we still have some very outdated provisions in our constitution. For example, we still have the woman in the home clause, but we also, our constitution protects the family, but only the married family. And we all know that that's no longer um, the predominant model in our society. So I think they have been surprised by that. I think they've also been surprised by um, some of some of the league tables they have seen where Ireland performs below where they would have expected Ireland to be. So there's a yes, there's a lot of factors um, moving in the direction of saying things need to start changing again. Now, COVID has also shed a very strong spotlight on the gendered impact of the pandemic. And so um, we've spent a lot of time discussing care, the situation of care workers who are overwhelmingly female and very badly paid and without security of tenure, a lot of them. We've discussed childcare, which has also 
been spotlighted by by the COVID crisis. Again, where they have something like a 25% turnover of staff because the terms and conditions are not good. Um, but we've also looked at um, um, areas like leadership. Um, why is uh, um, why is it that so few women you, you mentioned earlier on become prime ministers? But why do we still have so few women in the doyle even after all these times? We were the first country in Europe to elect a female minister, uh, and it took an awful long time between Constance Markovitch and Maura Gagan Quinn. Um, and there are still uh, too few women to be truly representative of, of the Irish population today. So again, and I think um, they were also very shocked to find out that there's no provision for maternity leave for ministers. Um, Helen McEntee is now leading um, the example on that. But there are many, many things that need to change. And I, I'll just finish by saying, um, I think there's a certain um, scepticism about the political level and about whether they will take the recommendations of the assembly seriously or not. But um, the citizens have decided to send very clear messages. They will not be drafted in civil service waffling. They will be very clear, simple words to say, we want this to change, we want this to happen. Um, And I really think um, and hope that uh, while much less sensational than the previous um, assemblies, I think this assembly has messages that should have an impact on everybody, male and female, um, because gen- gender equality is about everybody, uh, irrespective of how they define themselves. And I think we would um, benefit from having a more gender equal society. And I think that will be a very clear message from the assembly. The fact that we've had to work online means that there's been a lot less media um, attention to it. But I hope that when the assembly does vote, it's clear recommendations that then um, it will have uh, some impact. Well, it's great to have you chairing it, Catherine, with your clarity of thinking. And uh, just let me ask you, are you a fan of the concept of citizens assemblies, having seen uh, how this one is working? And of course, they have influenced government policy in the past. I've become a convert because um, I wasn't sure. I, I was interested and I had listened to some analysis of the previous ones and I thought, oh, this is a good idea. And in fact, before I was asked to do it, I, I was thinking this could be a good way for helping people to understand Europe. Um, but I'm an even bigger enthusiast now because what I've seen is the power of giving people the facts uh, because we, on something like gender equality, we all have our lived experience But what you need to know is, is it personal to you or are lots of people having the same experience? So factual presentations. Then we have had a lot of advocacy groups come in and tell us their story. And I think what has influenced the citizens in the assembly most was hearing the personal stories of people who were affected by the lack of services or the way the, the laws are worded. And so then, so having that input and then having the time to discuss with other citizens who don't necessarily take the same view, I think everybody in the assembly would say it has been a transformative experience and that they will be much more interested in following current affairs from now on um, and that they, they understand much better what goes on behind the scenes, um, how policy is formulated, how law is formulated but also how ordinary citizens can make changes. And my my very last comment will be, you will probably remember, Francis, both on marriage equality and on repeal of the eighth, 
at the time that the assemblies came out with their recommendations, there was a tendency on the part of some commentators to say, oh, but this is only this is not representative of the real Ireland. This is only a certain liberal view. But the voting in both referenda mirrored the voting in the assembly. So I think um, the way Ireland does it is terrific. And I think it's a real extra input into the democratic process and one that we should cherish and use. It's not suitable for every issue, but when it's well targeted, I think it can be terrific. Well, thanks so much, Catherine, for joining me today. It's been terrific listening to your experience in that most senior position in the European Union and now leading our Citizens' Assembly on gender equality. I'm really delighted to be able to discuss your experience, hear your insights, and thank you so much for joining us again. We'll be back with another episode of The European Lens very soon. <laughs>